good evening. Uh, very pleased to see all of you here. Uh, it's a great pleasure to me to be uh, chairing this meeting. Uh, John Paul uh, and I go back quite a while. In fact, this book is the outcome of uh, his PhD that I was had some marginal investment in supervising, uh, and I'm very pleased to see that it's getting all the attention um, that it's getting. John Paul, I think, has has given this talk in the States and elsewhere, and certainly the book is making a serious impact. I think the issues that he addresses are very central to all of us. When he started this work several years ago, decentralization had become one of the major issues around the building of democratic states. There were a whole series of assumptions that decentralization was a necessary way to increase bottom-up participation. Fortunately, Jean-Paul had actually worked in Bolivia uh, and was part of a process there where very radical steps were being taken by the government to build local government systems, and he had access to all of that information which he brought uh, into this work. Uh, he's then been able to use, I think, a very useful, effective um, analytical, economic analytical techniques to sort of evaluate those processes, but also has gone out and driven around the countryside, fording rivers and so on, and actually looking at what's been happening on the ground, bringing together a combination of participatory research and analytical research that I think is unique. Uh, and which I think makes an important contribution to a very complex debate uh, in which the jury is still out about whether decentralization is the critical variable or not. So I leave it to him to sort of spell out these, these problems. Mm -hmm. Can you hear me? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Teddy, for that. Um, and thank you for, for chairing this event tonight. Mm -hmm. this, this book is, as Teddy mentioned, the culmination of 15 years of research that goes back to my PhD here at the LSE. Um, and the LSE is, is really my intellectual home, the place where I learned to, the, the methods and, and the worldview and, and to, to think and teach and, and do research in the way that I do now. So it's a tremendous delight and honor to be here with you tonight. I'm grateful to all of you um, and to Teddy for, for being here with us. Before we get into the substance of this, if I can, hmm, is there any way to click on this to, to make it pop up? Ah, oh, here we go, sorry. If I could just show you. If I can show you a website which will be hopefully of interest to researchers and, and students on issues of, oops, later. Of, um, of local government and decentralization. This is a website that we've built on the LSE domain that supports this book and related research. So there's another book in Spanish, which is not the same book translated, but is a different, much more historical take, co-authored with uh, Bolivian colleagues and a collection of papers forthcoming, hopefully, in, in world development. But really the main thing tonight is the, the part of the website about this book, which contains, for example, all of the data that... I've developed over 15 years of, of research and is here for free downloads. If any one of you are interested in downloading the database and, and analyzing and so on, it's all right there, um, as well as things like K 
case studies and all of the original research tools, the questionnaire, the original research questionnaires in Spanish that I used over successive waves of research. Um, nothing would make me, and, and a bunch of other additional stuff. The full text of the Spanish book is available for free download, happily. Um, so nothing would please me more than if someone downloaded some of this stuff and did something useful for it. Because as I say, I put a lot of effort into compiling it, and so I think now it should be free. Okay, this is what we're going to do, which is to talk about decentralization. I'm going to spend a bit of time outlining the field and where the study fits into the field, because at the end I'm going to make some relatively bold claims about how one should study not only decentralization, but also a class of phenomena that we might, we might call um, institutional reform, complex, multifaceted institutional reform, and how to do that well, as opposed to mostly how it's been done, which is why it's a bold claim in the literature, and this is one example of that. And so to do that, I need to set it up. And then we'll get into decentralization in Bolivia and, and look at national changes that occurred as a result. And then to understand those trends, we'll go down deep into local governance in two particular municipalities of the 10 case studies that I looked at, the best and worst places. Um, and then we'll try to theorize about that and then test the theory with more data and more qualitative stuff um, before concluding. So it's, it's a full agenda. Um, but I, I'm counting on Teddy to get me through it in about 45, 50 minutes. So decentralization is one of the broadest movements and most contentious policy issues in the policy world, in the world of development. Um, in 1999, the World Bank estimated that between 80 and 100% of the world's countries were experimenting with some form of decentralization. Since then, another 25 to 30 countries have announced additional reforms, deepening or, or new reforms. Um, and so we're really getting up towards all, all of the world, essentially, is experimenting with decentralization. It's not just in developing countries, but also under the guises of subsidiarity, devolution, and federalism. It's high on the agenda in the richest countries in the world, in places like the EU, the UK, and the US. And it's not just the breadth, but also the depth of reforms that impress. Um, so Campbell estimates that in Latin America, between 10 and 50% of all national government resources have been devolved to lower levels of government, to provincial and, uh, and town governments. This is historically a huge reversal, no? because the, the human history over the last 10 to 15,000 years is the story of continuously increasing centralization. So if we begin, say, 200,000 years ago with the first anatomically modern humans, they lived in groups of a few dozen people on the plains of Africa. They were hunter-gatherers. No? It's difficult to infer social and political characteristics from fossils, but people who spend their lives doing this tell us that as far as we know, they were largely egalitarian, undifferentiated societies. The big change comes about 10 to 15,000 years ago, where human beings settle down and we get domesticated agriculture and animals, which permit productivity gains of 10 to 100 times, enormous productivity gains, um, that then permit much larger agglomerations of, of population um, and, and habitation densities. And so we go from a few dozen to groups of a few hundred at the beginning, and then chiefdoms and, and, and growing villages with populations in the thousands as we move in for marginally towards the hundredfold increase in productivity that settled agriculture gives us. And in this range, in chiefdoms, we start to see centralized hereditary leaderships, multi-level bureaucracies, and so on. So increasing centralization with increasing size and complexity. 
about 6,000 years ago in the river valleys of modern Egypt and Pakistan, India and Iraq, we see the world's first cities. And then 5,700 years ago, you get the first states in Mesopotamia. And I'm going to spend a second on this because this is important. These states are characterized by many cities and villages with one capital, centralized, whoops, is this working? Centralized decision-making, I can do this, centralized decision-making, control of information with sophisticated bureaucracies, old technology, systematized religion, and systematized law. No, religious orders and legal orders that that administer both religion and law, redistributive taxation, and and as I said, a capital city. Now, this is not just the lay of the land, and these are not just historical tendencies that happened, although they are both of those things. There is also a logic to it which is very powerful, and that is that this form of centralization, these instruments of centralization, permit greater mobilization of resources and greater mobilization of violence or projection of power than the previous institutional forms, the previous social organizations permitted. So when these early states come into contact with the chiefdoms or more primitive forms of organizations, the bands of hunter-gatherers, they triumph. They beat them in war, which is why they expand and the chiefdoms are conquered. And then we get into the history that we know much better, which is the Roman and Persian empires of 2,000 years ago, medieval kingdoms in Europe, nation-states from about the 17th century onwards. What is interesting is that even when the Roman and and Persian empires collapse, for example, around 476, I think, the Roman Empire collapses, and we get the rise of city-states and duchies, kingdoms, etc., the Kingdom of England, the Kingdom of France, Venice and Florence, we don't lose the instruments of, of centralization, right? We still have centralized religious orders, sophisticated bureaucracies, systems of taxation and distribution. They don't go away because Rome has collapsed. They're still in use, even though the polities are smaller. The scope of of society decreases, but centralization continues. And so this is why increasing centralization is the defining characteristic of the last 10 to 15,000 years. And so the rise of decentralization over the last 50 years is really unexpected. There's nothing in the history that suggests that this is about to happen. And yet now it's happening, and it's happening in essentially all of the world. But it's not irrational. There are good theoretical reasons for thinking that decentralization is a good thing. It should improve government. These reasons go under, under the slogan of taking government closer to the people with better public goods and more effective government. This is a, this is a cheerleading kind of slogan. It's not a very serious thing. But we can decompose it into serious analytical reasons in favor of decentralization, which, are, um, which we can group into supply-side reasons, the supply for policy and demand for policy kind of reasons. So on the supply side, decentralization might generate better information. It might generate greater participation. And if these two things obtain, it should generate more accountability. And where all three of these happen, then we should have a deepening of democracy. No? On the demand side, for any given country of given heterogeneity, a locality within that country should be more homogeneous. And this, this should aid in the identification of those people's needs and preferences and servicing those needs and preferences through policies and, and investments. So solid reasons for thinking that decentralization should be a good thing that help explain why it's so popular, perhaps. The problem is that the empirical literature does not agree. So I've spent 15 years of my life trawling through this stuff, and there are hundreds of published 
articles in peer-reviewed journals and academic journals. And if you include the so-called gray literature, the likes of World Bank and IMF and other reports, or DFID and USAID and NGOs, etc., the number ascends into the thousands and thousands of studies. And yet, they, it doesn't seem that we can prove anything about whether decentralization is a good or a bad thing. So Litvak et al. in 1998 say that you can prove or disprove practically any assertion about decentralization by combining different groups of cases and databases. Shaw, Thompson, and Zhu that look at um, a series of, of newer studies, they're, they're, they're self-consciously following on Litvak, say, and they look at quantitative studies, they say that decentralization sometimes improves and other times worsens service delivery, corruption, macroeconomic stability, and growth across a large range of countries. The most important recent book on, in this field is Treisman in 2007, who is more negative still. He says the results are inconclusive, weak, and contradictory. To date, he says, there are almost no solidly established general empirical findings about the consequences of decentralization. So we find ourselves in this absurd situation, this bizarre paradox, where there is policy experimentation all over the world. We have 50 years of, of, of policy um, policy studies of all of these experiments that are happening all over the world, and yet it seems like we, don't, we can't tell whether decentralization is a good or a bad thing. And I think there's some reasons for this. The first reason is conceptual confusion. What it is. Many, of, many studies, especially in the older literature, begin with a taxonomy of decentralization that says, well, you can have different kinds of decentralization in different countries. Some countries might deconcentrate, others might delegate, others might devolve, others might privatize. Starting off this way is a fundamental mistake which skews the results, which skews what you can find in a way that's very powerful and, and needs to be acknowledged. Take, for example, deconcentration and devolution, two of the, the two most similar of these four. Deconcentration is when you take public servants in, say, London, and you deconcentrate them to Manchester, to Cardiff, to, to medium-sized and small towns and cities across the country. And they continue operating within the same monocratic hierarchy, but they do it somewhere else. They're no longer in London. And the, the, the rationale is that it will be cheaper for them to get higher quality information where they are. But their incentives are still upward-looking. No? because their career incentives in terms of, of progress, in terms of promotion, depend on what the hierarchy continues to think about their performance, which means what their superiors in London think. Compare that to democratic devolution, where you take the same functions and you devolve them to locally elected officials in local governments. In this case, their incentives are downward-looking, no? Because whether those officials um, succeed and progress and... and uh, and are successful or not depends on whether they get re-elected. It depends on what the voters think in a way that is systematically different to deconcentration. If I make the comparison with privatization, it's even more stark. So when we compare countries that have done different things under the same rubric, we're, just, we're making a, a, a simple mistake. You know, if, you, if you chop up apples and oranges and you mix them up and do blind taste testing, sometimes it's crunchy and sometimes it's sweet and sometimes it's juicy and sometimes it's not, and your results are mixed. No, you can't tell. Well, of course you can't tell. They're different things. And we shouldn't study them as if they were the same. Secondly, where is it implemented? It's my contention that most decentralizations in the world that are announced are not fully implemented for a very simple reason. And the answer is to ask yourselves, what rational prime minister or president rationally, willfully de devolves government? 
And I, a slight switch here. Henceforth, from this moment onwards, I'm going to call decentralization, I'm going to define it as democratic devolution, which I'll go into in a moment, and a little bit more, a little bit more specifically. So what prime minister or president rationally chooses to devolve power and resources by definition to people they can't control. It doesn't make any sense. No, even if the president wants to because she's a visionary, the central bureaucracy that is being asked to give up power and resources doesn't want to because they're systematically undermining themselves, their ability to exert patronage, their status, the power and resources that they can dispose of. And they don't want to do that. And so any central bureaucracy that is asked to decentralize immediately begun, begins a quiet rearguard battle to undo or to, to stymie the decentralization. And if you look empirically across countries, that has happened again and again. Secondly, many studies, especially the older studies, have what I would call a non-rigorous empirical basis, which is, on the one hand, qualitative studies, and then they're sort of in two groups, qualitative and quantitative studies. Qualitative studies typically have a small number of observations and a large number of variables. So one study that Teddy may recall that tortured me when I was his PhD student a long time ago um, was a study of decentralization in India, Indonesia, and Mexico. And the study sets out to research what happened and different things happened in the three countries. In all three countries, results were disappointing and different from what had been predicted and different from one another. And then the study ends with a laundry list of 15 or 17 factors that explain why results were different in the, th in the three countries. This is a mathematical system that has, that has three variables, and that has, sorry, that has 15 variables and three equations, right? And we all know from our secondary school algebra that such a mathematical system cannot be solved. Quantitative studies solve that sort of problem by, um, by, by having lots more observations, by having lots more data, but they do it at a high cost. And the high cost is that countries vary systematically in terms of their culture, their religions, their geography, their economic structure, their constitutions, their institutions, and so on and so forth, in important ways that we should expect to affect decentralization outcomes, but which we can't control for in the data because our databases don't have good data on this kind of thing. If you're studying a marginal change in the tax rate or the interest rate, you can, to a certain extent, you can abstract away from culture and geography because it doesn't matter that much. But for decentralization, it does matter. And I'm going to try to tell you, convince you of that why in a moment. Lastly, most simply, but I think most powerfully, we've been asking the wrong question. And this is, is decentralization good or bad? And this is a strangely centralized approach for a topic that's meant to be about devolving power and resources to lots of different units. As if decentralization were a switch that you flip that has similar effects across the country. And I think that's just wrong. And, and if we study it that way, then we make a serious mistake. So the solution is what I tried to implement in this book. Um, first of all, a simple restrictive definition. Decentralization is democratic devolution from the center to the periphery where local governments are substantially independent within a particular domain, a geographic and functional domain. So we're going to have decentralization of sensible services, not monetary policy, not trunk roads and highways, but things like local education, local health, local roads, etc. Um, secondly, Empirical rigor, what I call a large N one country study, and this is the base of the methodological claim, where we, we have lots and lots of observations with econometrics, but the units of analysis are municipalities, it's not countries. And so with keeping it within one country allows us to control for the shocks and the exogenous stuff that varies. But we're going to marry that 
with qualitative analysis, with deep case studies based on interviews and observation, etc., which gets to much deeper into what's going on at the local level. Um, and lastly, the right question. And the right question, it seems to me, takes off from the premise <coughs> excuse me, that when you decentralize, you're going to have a huge heterogeneity of response, a huge heterogeneity of outcomes that will vary as much as all the local units vary from one another. We're not going to decentralize and find that education improves everywhere, and we're not going to decentralize and find that education gets worse everywhere. That's never going to happen. We're going to have a huge heterogeneity. So the obvious answer to the question, is decentralization good for education, is yes, of course it is, in any country that decentralizes. And the obvious answer to the question, is decentralization bad for education, is yes. In, any, in that same country at that same time, it is also bad for education. Because in some places, ed- education will get better because those municipalities manage things better. And in other places, education will get worse because those other municipalities were corrupt or inept or just got unlucky in the way that, that can happen in policy. Um, and so to understand decentralization, we need to understand why the good ones are good and why the bad ones are bad and not expect all of them to be one way or the other. And to understand that, we have to understand how local governance works. Okay, with that extended introduction, let's let's get into what you actually came here to hear about, which is decentralization in Bolivia. The Bolivians decentralized in a radical way, in a sincere way, in 1994. The law was announced in January, passed in April, and implemented on the 1st of July. And it was a sharp break with what was happening before in Bolivia, and so it's an interesting social experiment to analyze. It had four main components. One is that they doubled all transfers from the center to municipalities, but much more importantly, to 20% of of national revenues. Much more importantly, the allocation mechanism across municipalities switched from a highly idiosyncratic, non-systematic one to a simple per capita uh, allocation rule. So a small town that had 1,000 people got 155,000 bolivianos in the first year. La Paz, with a million people, got 155 million bolivianos in the first year, and that was that. And the transparency and simplicity of that aided reform. And we can talk about that later. Um, Secondly, they decentralized control and ownership over infrastructure in a sensible way of the kind of things you would expect. Primary education, primary health, primary roads, uh, sports and culture, and so on. Thirdly, they created oversight committees, these comités de vigilancia, which are an alternative channel for popular demands. They're kind of vaguely, Teddy has christened them, kind of a, a vague... Um, upper house of parliament, like a house of lords, in the sense that they're geographically representative. They're not electorally representative. There is separately a municipal council which is elected in the normal way by proportional representation, as as is the case in Bolivia. These have a geographic um, logic to them, and they kind of interact with the municipal council about policy making and oversight in a way that ends up being very powerful. Lastly, municipalization. Existing borders in Bolivia were expanded to include rural catchment areas, and an extra 198 new municipalities out of the 311 in total at the end of the reform were newly created, were newly legally incorporated. That is to say, most of Bolivian space and almost half the population lived in unorganized space in no municipalities before decentralization. So decentralization municipalized the whole country so that everyone and everywhere was part of one or another municipality. So the question is, what happened? It's possible that in any country that decentralizes, central government is going along more or less okay, making mediocre decisions, 
and the central, the, the local governments that follow also make mediocre decisions and nothing much changes, right? So the first thing to decide is to establish is did anything change? And so here, what I've tried to do is examine how investment changed across uses, across sectors. This is only investment. This is not running costs or administrative costs. The um, the purple, the, sorry, the, the blue lines, the dark blue lines are what central government did in the final three years before reform, and the yellow bars are what local governments did in the first three years after. This is only local. I've stripped out all continuing central government investment. Um, and this is all of this for, in both cases, before and after, is incremental investment, so no running costs. It's a revealed preference argument. The idea is just to see what did each side care about. And what we see is that before reform, Central government cared about transport, then hydrocarbons, then energy, and then this grab bag multi-sectoral, which is kind of everything else. After reform, local governments prioritize first education, then urban development, then water and sanitation, then transport and health. Urban development is because most municipalities in Bolivia didn't exist, and so they didn't have offices or tables and chairs to meet in, to del deliberate in, to function. They, didn't, you know, they had no salaries or anything. So a lot of municipalities set about buying or building offices in the first three years. This goes down hugely after the third year. So if we characterize this broadly, there's a big shift in national investment patterns away from economic and productive infrastructure towards human capital accum accumulation and primary services, towards education, water, and health, towards that kind of thing that central government just didn't care as much about before. The second way we can ask the question is, how did investment vary across space? And so here what I've done is to divide up the entire public sector investment budget over a 20-odd year period, before and after. So this is the, the last seven years before decentralization. These two graphs here are centralized investment decisions, and this is decentralized investment decisions where each municipality is a black dot expressed in boliviano per capita terms. The average exchange rate is about five bolivianos per US dollar, to give you an idea of the general levels. And so the question is, what sort of pattern across space do we see? Do the, 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 the Amartya Sen-style thought experiment, what is the most unequal allocation of resources across space that one could have, in theory? What is the most unequal allocation? A lot of my students are here. I'm sure you guys can tell me. What would that look like in the graph? It would, be, it would be one black dot up here getting all the money, no? and all the other black dots at exactly zero getting nothing. In terms of this graph, that is as unequal a distribution as we can achieve. Right? The most equal distribution would be all the black dots at some intermediate but equal level, all of them lined up at the same level. So they're all getting the same distribution in per capita terms. What we see here in practice during the seven years before reform is not quite the unequal maximum that, that theory implies, but it's pretty close. You had one municipality that got 77,000 bolivianos per capita, which in Bolivian terms is just a vast amount of money. If those of you who aren't familiar with Latin America, if you're thinking of Bolivia like Argentina and Chile and Uruguay, you've got sort of the wrong mental paradigm. Especially in this period, think of Bolivia like Kenya or Ghana. Think of Bolivia as an African economy, in economic terms, like an African country and less like a, like a southern cone Latin American country. Another municipality got 42,000 bolivianos per capita. These two here got about 20, 21,000 bolivianos per capita. Huge distributions. And a lot of places down here seem to get very little. 
But these very high observations are compressing the, the vertical axis. So I drop here, I drop the highest 12 observations, which allows me to expand the vertical axis and look at greater detail down here. And there is essentially more variation at lower levels. But when you count the black dots that are exactly on the x-axis, on the origin, you find that 40% of Bolivian municipalities got nothing during the seven years before decentralization. That is to say, the central government freely chose to invest 0.000 bolivianos in 40% of Bolivian municipalities, year after year for seven years. After reform, we see now at much different levels because, of course, municipalities only get 20% of, uh, of, of national resources in the first year. That rises slightly, but we're talking about much smaller sums overall. But the distribution is far more equal here. When you look at the data for a long time, you see that there's an obvious periodicity that has to do with natural resource prices and royalties, which is why this curve is shifting upwards over time. Um, but even the most unequal distribution here is far more equal than what central government freely chose to do. Yeah? Now, the story here is not so much that, because this greater equality results in a mechanical way from the, um, from <clears throat> from the allocation rule that I described in the reform, the real story here is that central government chose to be so unequal. It could have been different, but it just wasn't. The last and most important way that we can ask what changed with decentralization is did public investment become more sensitive, more responsive to real local needs or not? And so I'm going to use proxies for real local needs sector by sector. I'm just going to show you education for lack of time, but I've done this for six or seven of the most important sectors, health, uh, water, sanitation, agriculture, transport, and so on. Um, and so I'm going to use, for education, the illiteracy rate as a proxy of objective local need. And the argument is as follows. Take the outer two, the extreme observations here, the, the very first black dot, uh, blue dot, and the very last blue dot there. In this municipality, again, these are municipalities expressed in, in Bolivianos per capita, like the previous graphs. In this municipality, Illiteracy is about 10% of the population. So about 90% of the population can read. In this municipality, illiteracy is about 85% of the population. So only 15% of the population can read. All else equal, says my argument, this municipality has a greater need for education investment than that one does. No? They both need education investment. Both of them need to continue investing in schools and teaching and so on. But this place needs it more. Because in this place, most adults cannot read. And so if we don't invest in education and teach the kids, they're not going to learn it at home. Right? So <clears throat> a needs-responsive trend in investment would look like this. Right? It would be where we're investing in these places with low illiteracy, but we're investing more in these places here with high illiteracy. A needs-regressive trend in investment would look like this, that exacerbate existing discrepancies in illiteracy. So the places with low illiteracy get even better and the places with high illiteracy get worse because you're investing in a way that's regressive. What do we actually see? Believe it or not, this red line is actually the regression line, the trend line. Under centralization, it appears that central government invested with no sensitivity, with no uh, reference to need. So they invested very little and they invested small amounts in places with great need and small amounts in places with low need. They just didn't care about need. If we do the same trick of expanding the vertical axis, this line turns slightly negative, but that slope is not statistically significant, so it's basically a horizontal line. Central government didn't care about need. After reform, 
These are the amounts that were invested by local governments freely that they chose to invest. And you see that the line is upward sloping and statistically significant at the 1% level, and it becomes slightly more upward sloping here um, in the second and the later period. So the stylized fact here is that central government was highly insensitive to need, and local governments, municipal decentralized governments, were much more sensitive to need. Of course, the other stylized fact that hits you over the head is how few municipalities received any investment at all under centralization. Only 15%, one five, 15% of Bolivian municipalities got anything at all in education under central government, right? which means central government freely chose to invest 0.00 in 85% of Bolivian municipalities. After reform, 97% of Bolivian municipalities choose to invest their own funds in education, and those that don't, the 3% that don't invest anything are typically very small, very poor places that spend the whole budget on something else like water or sanitation. Um, so education just booms in terms of priorities and in terms of action, in terms of real progress after the reform. <clears throat> so if I, the first set of conclusions that we can say already are, are the following, the sort of stylized facts of living decentralization. Decentralization shifted public investment from production to human capital formation and primary services, one. Two, this shift was driven by smaller, poorer, more rural municipalities, not by the big cities. It's not due to what happened in La Paz, Cochabamba, Santa Cruz. It's due to what happened in those small, rural, poor places, especially the places that were ignored for so long under centralization. <clears throat> Third, there's much more spatial equality as the per capita criterion shifts resources to these smaller, rural places that before were ignored. And fourthly, Local government investments are far more responsive to local needs than the central government was beforehand. I should say that all of these findings are actually based on fairly um, complex and comprehensive econometric estimations. I'm not showing you them here because I want to show you other econometrics later on that get to a deeper point. But I've, I've only shown you colorful graphs, but I'm not basing these conclusions on those graphs. Those graphs illustrate the conclusions. There's more analytical work behind them. So I'm, I'm quite sure that stuff is true. Um, okay, so how do we... These are the national tendencies, the national trends that took place. How do we understand this stuff? To understand it, I want to take you deep down into local government in two particular municipalities of my 10 case studies, the best and the worst, because we need to understand local governance. And to do that, we've got to shift gears and, and look at qualitative means and tell stories about good and bad local government in Bolivia. And I want to go specifically to Viacha here on the main southern highway down from La Paz towards Oruro and Charagua here where the Altiplano foothills give way to the vast Chaco Eastern Plain. Viacha is, well, standard, standard models, standard theories of public management would predict that Viacha would have relatively high-performing local government and Charagua would have relatively low-performing um, local government because the structural impediments or challenges that Chiragua face are, should be overwhelming, according to these standard theories. Viache is bigger, industrial, it has a much richer resource base, it has a significant local tax base. It's smaller. Because it's on the Altiplano, transport year-round is relatively easy, as opposed to Chiragua and the entire eastern plain in Bolivia, where there, there, are, in Chiragua, there are no paved roads anywhere in Chiragua. And so the roads, the dirt roads that are there, wash out four months of the year, and you cannot physically get from one place to another unless you have a helicopter. 
And believe me, the, the mayor in Chiragua does not have a helicopter. So getting around the place and trying to figure out what's going on, um, are the towns suffering from an outbreak of a disease, or how is the school building project going, or how about some participative planning in this or that community is impossible for about a third of the year. The economy here is much poorer. 75% um, of the population per, is subsistence farming, Guarani speakers who do subsistence farming. Um, and lastly, this place is huge. Charagua is 72,000 square kilometers. It looks like this, and it goes all the way along the, the Paraguayan border like this. Um, I think it touches Brazil on this side as well. Does anyone have a sense of 72,000 square kilometers? Can anybody give me a comparison of what that might look like? No? Are there any Belgians here? Oh, outstanding. Belgium is 30,000 square kilometers in size. So the municipality of Charagua, with, with apologies to, to you, the municipality of Charagua is two and a half times the size of Belgium. It's bigger than Holland. It's bigger than Costa Rica. Managing this place on no resources and with no roads is almost impossible. So you would expect government to just fall down for, for lack of suitable preconditions, and you expect government here to be you know, okay, good or bad, but better than there. And what we see is exactly the opposite. In Viacha, local government was unresponsive, violent, and corrupt. Oh, I should say to my students, 15 years later, Teddy still refers to these places as Chiapas and Viagra. So... <laughs> On your final exams, you should feel free to write Chapas and Viagra. I'll know what you mean. <laughs> Viaccio was unresponsive, violent, and corrupt. The mayor sabotaged accountability and public oversight. Let me give you a little bit of evidence just so you don't only believe me because I'm saying this. Local government expanded the payroll by more than 100% without increasing administrative capability one whit. They weren't capable of doing more than they had done before they doubled the payroll. We had projects like an unfinished, over-budget municipal coliseum that was unfinished and over-budget when I first went there in 1997 and was still unfinished and over-budget the last time I went there to look in 2009. Um, it was a black hole into which the municipality threw its money. You had an exploding sewerage project in which the mayor hired a local or gave a, a contract to a local contracting company, a local builder, who had financed his campaign to dig up the 30-year-old tubes sewerage infrastructure underneath Viacha uh, and replace them with new tubes, but the new tubes were too small in diameter and they were made with a bad mix of sand and cement, i.e. too much sand in the cement. And so they literally exploded and they threw up the stuff that sewers carry onto the streets of Viacha and they left big craters in a number of downtown city streets in Viacha that cars could not pass. You could just about walk through if you were brave, but you couldn't, you couldn't drive a car through it. Um, Public officials, municipal councilmen, and the mayor's political bosses all testified to me. The mayor's political boss, the head of his political party, said, my problem here is that the mayor is corrupt, and I don't know what to do about it. I chose this guy, and he's corrupt. Um, and a national audit charged the mayor with malfeasance, and actually there's a, there is a legal process against him. He was found guilty. Why? Well, the mayor was corrupt and corrupting, so corruption spread down throughout the municipal apparatus to the point where the truck driver, the municipal truck drivers, would not unload bags of cement or stone or other goods, other building materials in rural villages without being paid a bribe because everyone above them was doing that, so they would do it too. You had an ineffective municipal council who demanded to know. We demand to know. They said to me, the, the gringo researcher who was there from overseas, 
we demand to know what our responsibilities are and how we can make things better here because we're incapable. We just can't see how it's going to get better. Um, and an oversight committee that I described before that was neutralized, the mayor actually fired them and he changed the locks on the door and then he hired his own oversight committee who were a couple of guys from Potosi in the extreme south of the country who were unknown there and did not know Viacha and he paid them a salary and they rubber stamped everything he did and all of this was completely illegal and yet he did it. And so there was no, there was no political or social oversight but I mean, these causes are rather dumb causes of bad government because I'm just sort of redescribing exactly how government is bad. So let's look for deeper causes in terms of the local economy, the local political party system, and civil society. And so in the local economy, you had one big dominant firm, which was the Cerveceria Boliviana Nacional, the, the, the big national brewery in Bolivia. What you need to know about Bolivia is that there is a guy called Max Fernandez who founded this, he, he, he consolidated this company, he bought some smaller breweries and he formed this company, and he also formed his own political party, the UCS, the Unión Cívica de Solidaridad. And he ran the two as one joint integrated operation that produced two outputs, politics and beer. You know? And they were completely integrated in the sense that any employee had dual roles and dual responsibilities. And so, for example, the head of the UCS political party was simply the head of the local beer factory. It was a, a bottling plant, is what it was. They bottled most Bolivian beer in, in Viacha. So for Viacha, this is a big deal. And he put all of the, he put a huge resources, infrastructure, manpower, the fleet of trucks, etc., at the disposal of the party to win election after election after election. So I went to meet this guy. His name is Juan Carlos Blanco, a big bear of a man. And because I wanted to know, you tell me and everyone else tells me that the mayor is corrupt. Everybody complains about bad investment projects, money that goes missing. If they build something, it falls down because the, the building materials are rotten. And yet you win elections with huge majorities. How do you do this? Now, this, this guy is huge and, and he used a lot of bad language. Um, I'll just give you a, a, tiny, a, a tiny flavor of it. He said to me, damn it, the problem with academics is that you don't know anything. I'm going to tell you how the world works. I went to the head of the mayor, the, the local mayor, another political party, the, one of the main opposition parties in Viacha, and I said to him, you bloody bastard, you're pathetic. Look at you. Your office is disgusting. It's tiny and you've got no windows. Your campaigns are a joke. You don't have two cents to rub together because nobody gives a shit about you. Your, your party officials in La Paz don't give you any money for running your campaigns, and you are a disaster. And that stupid guy said, yes, yes, Don Juan Carlos, you're, you're not wrong. And I said to him, I'm going to give you 10,000 US dollars for your next campaign because I want elections to look like their elections here. I'm sick of all you guys rolling over and letting me do anything I want. You know, we have to make a better show of it. I'm going to give you $10,000. But by God, you take that nice old doctor that you have on the top of your list, right, proportional representation, so where you are on the list matters a lot. You take that nice old doctor at the top of your list and you put him to the bottom of the list and you get Lopez, your guy Lopez, who's a member of your party, and you put him at the top of the list. And that stupid guy said to me, but sir, Lopez is corrupt. Everyone knows he's corrupt. And the doctor's been here forever and he's delivered, he was an obstetrician, he's delivered like half the population in Viaccia. Everyone loves him. How will, why would I do that? And I said to him, God damn it, that's exactly why you're going to do that. Because then you're going to get the vote you deserve, but you're going to get it with my money. So I thought, this is extraordinary. <laughs> and I went and I interviewed the head of the mayor. And the head of the mayor said, 
Yes, efectivamente, we're, somos muy olvidados. We were very forgotten here in Viacha. The local, the national political party doesn't give us any resources. I can't campaign out of the city center. And even in the city center, I only managed to have one or two rallies. It's really terrible. Don Juan Carlos Blanco gave us a very generous contribution for our campaign. That's true. And, of course, as a function of that contribution, there was a certain policy discussion then took place. You look at the electoral filings and it's very clear. The doctor goes in at the beginning of the period just before the election is amended and Lopez goes in number one. Yeah. So it's very clear what's going on. He's systematically undermining political competition. Right? He's supporting his party to a tremendous degree and he's undermining competition of the other parties. So political party competition is neutralized. There's very little political competition of any type and what there is is symbolic or clientelistic. The UCS goes around giving out blue buckets to families and villages. And then some of the other parties that can manage to muster a bit of money go and give out plastic buckets that are red or purple or green. Right? But there's no substantive competition in the sense of real discussion of people's problems and policy responses to those. And so then you get tremendous political apathy. In a period where voter turnout in Bolivia is going up 127% as a direct result of decentralization and complementary changes that made it, made it easier to get voter registration and ID documents. In Viaja, voter turnout is crashing by 40%. It's a completely different trends in between Viaja and the country. Um, you might think that civil society might do something about this, especially if you believe in Robert Putnam and social capital. Um, it couldn't in Viaja because there's a, there are stark divisions, first between the city, which sees itself as white, modern, European, and the, the, the heavily indigenous countryside itself divided between the Machacas region, which is one bit of it, and the rest closer to the city. And so the system just carries on. It's like a big, sad party. They carry on winning elections and mismanaging money, and people are very unhappy, but it seems that nothing can be done. In Chiragua, by contrast, local government was very good, responsive, led by strong organizations of government. So, for example, the mayor topped a departmental ranking, they had a, a net resource shock of 6,500% as a result of decentralization. Their budget went up by 6,500% when they started getting these distributions, but they keep up operating costs to 4% of the total. So the polar opposite of Viacha that doubles the payroll. Um, national government audits that damned Viacha concurred that this place is really good. And local testimony, this is for me the most convincing thing. In my interviews, nobody accused the mayor of malfeasance, of corruption, or even of not trying hard. There were lots of serious discrepancies in terms of policy objectives. They're spending too much on health or they're spending too much in the countryside. But these are legitimate uh, differences. No? Nobody said that the mayor was, was ill-intentioned or corrupt or anything like that or anyone else in the municipal council. So well, why the, the, the polar opposite of what we have in Viacha in terms of the mayor, the municipal council, and the oversight committee, but let's go to the deeper reasons. On the one hand, you have a competitive local economy. So these ranchers are are structurally, they're, they're naturally more pluralistic than one big beer company is in Viaccia because cattle ranching is a family business, right? So you have lots of small family, well, some of them big, most of them small and some very small, um, uh, family-owned firms, which are ranchers, which support a plurality of different political parties and other movements. Even when the, the cattlemen told me, as some did, my sympathies, either the cattle rancher, my sympathies lie with the centrist or the right-wing political party, the MNR or the ADN, even then, the left-wing parties come and I give them a couple of cows. Yeah? Political donations in this part of the world work by, you, you give them some cows, you give them some cattle. 
and they slaughter the cattle and they have a barbecue and people make speeches and you have a rally. That, that's, how, that's how politics works in the chakra. And so this supported an open competitive political system and supported in particular political entrepreneurialism, which is a political analog of entrepreneurialism in the business sector. You have an idea, you have a new invention, a new business model, a new internet, something or the other, you know, whatever it is. And you set up a business and you, have a, and, and you exploit that. In politics, you identify a, new, a, a, vote of, a, a pocket of voters or a group of the population that is not being adequately attended to. You come up with political proposals that feed their needs, and then you get elected by those people. Right? And if a new politician or a new party comes up, then that... that um, that locale is obviously open to political entrepreneurialism, and that leads to broad representation. And the best example of this is that when the municipality was broadened under the reform to include the big rural Guarani area, Guaranis in, in Charagua became 75% of the population. The Mir, the same political party in Biacha, the Mir in Charagua, went to speak to local Guarani leaders and said, listen, you guys are now the majority you should, by rights, win any election that is ever run in this place. Before, you were, your votes were repressed. You were actively dissuaded from voting and passively dissuaded, and there were no polling places in rural areas, so on and so forth. But now you should win any election that takes place. So let's do a deal. We, the Mir, will negotiate with you, the Guarani speakers, the indigenous Guarani population, with your leadership, um, and we'll agree a platform of policies that, are, you know, that, that, that attend to your needs, you pick your candidate. It can be anyone you want. It doesn't have to be a member of our party. And in Spanish, le ponemos la camiseta. We'll take a T-shirt that says Mir and we'll put it on your candidate of your choice. We'll induct him like this into the party. And then you guys have to get out the vote and make sure that your people vote for him because Guarani speakers are very poor and they're not used to voting. It's just not part of their... Sadly, it wasn't part of their tradition. And this worked. And the mayor, having never gotten more than 5% of the vote at the extreme in Charagua, won the election and stepped into power and took over the municipality. And part of what made it work is a highly structured, coherent civil society that had one, what political scientists call one peak association, this APG organization called uh, the Asamblea del Pueblo Guarani that organized Guarani speakers. It's built on the local organizations of, of town and village self-government that had existed for a very long time, and they built an upwardly hierarchical organizational structure on that, basically, but using all of the norms and traditions of, of Guarani self-government. So the, the point is they were instantly, or they were very rapidly legitimate and had very rapidly a high capacity to mobilize Guaranis, to carry on group-wise discussions, and when they said, we're choosing this guy, you must vote for him, the Guaranis went out and voted for him. Right, they, they, they believed it. So there's upward and downwards transmission of information and high legitimacy. And so what I think we can get from this is a theory that explains why local governments are responsive and accountable in some places and not in others. This is the, the sort of the holy grail of what we want to explain. I'll stay on this side. And I think the main factor that explains this is local politics. If local politics is open and competitive, like Charagua and not like Viacha, then you're going to tend to get responsive local government. The problem is that this is not exogenous. This is not a given characteristic of some place that is unchanging, like whether it's on a mountain or in the plains, whether it's hot or it's cold. This is endogenous. This can change very rapidly. And in particular, it's endogenous to these two things, to the local economic structure, whether you have 
one big, powerful, monopsonistic provider of political finance like you did in Viaggio, one big firm that can distort local politics and does so, or a more diverse, heterogeneous local economy that supports different parties, different firms with different interests supporting different, different, different interests, let's say. It could be landowners, it doesn't have to be a firm, but different actors supporting different, different parties. And civil society, the extent to which civil society is organized into many active groups or not. And it is a simple empirical feature of any country, and certainly a country as diverse as Bolivia, that in some places civil society is highly organized and in other places it's not. <coughs> An example of a place where it's not might be a place with high migration, um, like Borongo, another place I went to visit, where you have lots of people who have recently migrated from different parts of the country. Some speak Quechua, some speak Guarani, some speak Aymara, um, and they, they have difficulty speaking to one another because a lot of them don't speak Spanish very well, and so they have no common language, and they don't trust one another. They have different religions, different cuisines, different traditions, and so there are, just, there are very few organized organizations in civil society in Porongo. There are very many, or there's a strong, there's one big organization that sort of agglomerates all the local village organizations in Charagua, which is the, the APG that I mentioned. And so where local firms and civil society engages, when they interact with one another through politics, politics will tend to be open and, and substantively competitive, and government will tend to be responsive. And so I test this. I test this empirically. I'm going to, try to, I'm going to, I'm going to summarize this hugely, and we can come back to it if there's interest. This is the second set of regressions, where I'm going to regress... Um, investment patterns, sector by sector, education or health or water or agriculture, against a vector of factors, um, of variables. So I mentioned that the things that I think really matter here are the economy and local civil society. So first we've got firms here, the local structure of the economy, the number and type of firms, um, local civic actors, and then this N is needs, like in those graphs I showed you before about illiteracy and education, so for education, this will be illiteracy, right? I want to see if, if uh, public investment by, by municipal governments is more or less responsive to need. But the real action here is in the interaction terms, where I interact need with firms, need with civic groups, firms with civic groups, and then this one here, this term is really the kicker. This is the important one that needs to come out right if, if the evidence is to be telling. Um, which is the, the three-way interaction of needs times firms times civic groups. Because, again, what I'm saying is that where firms and civic groups interact, you'll get responsive government. So the need is relevant. Um, and then also I have a vector of controls for regional, demographic, economic, and other things. Sort of the, the typical controls you would expect, and they are there. Um, and so these are the results. And what you see is that, once again, need is an important variable when we don't include the interactions. But as we include the interactions, the interactions become, uh, come to dominate the relationship, and need by itself doesn't matter unless need is interacted here with firms and grassroots organizations. So I'm going to interpret this. I, I'm, I'm running through this quickly, but if there, if there are questions, we can come back to it, um, just for lack of time. But um, this, the interpretation of this is obviously that, um, that the theory is supported because you need these things to interact to get the needs responsiveness. When, and when we're measuring these interactions, need by itself doesn't matter. So there's not some magical need fairy that is, that is making municipalities more responsive. It's not written into the central law. It's a function of local conditions, and in particular, whether civic groups and local economic actors 
are interacting with each other, debating and coming to agreements through local politics, supporting different parties that compete against one another or not. And there are large real effects in terms of resources. So it's not just that I find a statistical correlation. The implication of this is that a one standard deviation increase in illiteracy, given a context that is dense in firm and grassroots organizations, firm and civic interactions, leads to an increase in investment of almost a million Bolivianos per thousand inhabitants, which again in a poor country is a large amount of money. Right? So where these things interact, then in a municipality where they're interacting that needs more education investment, you get a lot more education investment. The same is true of urban development, and the same is true of health. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to blow past it because Teddy's going to cut me off in a second. So in 2009, I mentioned that I returned to the municipalities. I want to focus on Viachem Charagua um, to see what was going on and to see whether the ideas that I developed in the previous round, and, and, and these ideas initially came out of work that was published before I went back there. So, you know, they're sort of, they'd been jelly in my head for some time before and to see if they stood the test of time. And I was surprised, I was, I was delighted and surprised to find that local government in Viachi was transformed. It's gone from being a cesspool of, of, of corruption um, and, and bad management to open, transparent, and responsive government. And so quick evidence so you don't just believe me that this is really true. All 63 rural communities now have electricity. Before, one did. Most now have potable water and all will soon 70% of all primary schools in Viacha have internet. And this is extraordinary to me. Most schools didn't have electricity before. Now they all have internet. Now 70% have internet. The mayor gives quarterly reports to the population and weekly reports to the oversight committee. Um, and spending plans have been devolved internally within the municipality down to the district level. Um, and a bunch of external actors like the UNDP and national audits concurred that this is taking place. So how did this happen? What changed in Viacha? Well, it turns out that local government continued limping along very poorly um, with, with bad local government, bad mayors, huge corruption, and, and mayors that were successively deposed, i.e. overturned legally by, by votes of no confidence, until there was an external shock, which was that the Argentine brewery Quilmes bought the Bolivian brewery, CBN, and they took a simple private sector decision to close down the bottling plant in that place. And I'm quite sure that this decision had nothing to do with local politics. Quilmes in Buenos Aires doesn't care about local politics in Viacha. What they did was to rationalize the bottling back to the plant where the, the beer is actually brewed. The beer before was brewed in La Paz and bottled in Viacha. They said, this is ridiculous. We're going to brew it in one place and bottle it in the same place. So they closed down the CBN plant. And with that, the CBN and the UCS political party basically left Viacha, or they left it in the... They, they, they were huge. The, the UCS was enormously slimmed down and the CBN plant was just closed. And once this exogenous constraint was lifted, because remember that the, the, the CBN was not only distorting politics but actively repressing civil society, keeping it from organizing by trying to divide it and giving it little gifts and saying, if you try to oppose us, we're going to stop giving you the gifts. This is a standard sort of strategy in this context. Then you have an ascent of civil society that becomes more and more organized and with more incentive to organize. A couple of years later, a modernizing candidate appears. He promises to do better policy and to, to tend to local needs, and he gets elected. And then he actually, he, he, <clears throat> excuse me, he goes through on his, on his promises. He runs the, the local 
municipality in a much more transparent way. He produces outputs that actually um, are responsive to local needs, and voters learn the benefits of having a good government as opposed to being mired in this expectation that for whatever reason, government is always bad here, and why get involved and why vote? Because nothing will ever change, because it's always been like that in Viacha. Right? Many of you have, have lived in developing countries or are from them, and you, you know what I'm talking about. And here they learn the positive um, lesson of, of what good local government can do when they organize and when they vote in a particular way. So then my fear was that I would go back to Chiragua, and Chiragua will have fallen apart, and then my theory is blown to bits, because if the bad case gets good and the good case gets bad, I'm left with, I have to start all over and explain things differently. And it turned out that in Chiragua, the government has improved. It was already a very high-functioning local government, but it got better over the 13 years. So now all rural municipalities, all rural communities in, in this town, in this municipality, have schools, and almost all have health posts and electricity. Budgeting and planning are devolved down to district and even village levels, so one level lower than in Viacha. The mayor gives quarterly reports on works, budgets, etc. Communities manage budgets and projects directly, and Charagua ranks third best nationwide, despite these structural difficulties of being vastly big and very poor. It ranks third best behind, for example, Sucre, which is the constitutional capital in a bigger, richer city. And how did it improve? Well, the APG, this group that I told you, the civic group that I told you about before, entered politics directly after a legal change that permitted civil groups to enter politics. And they teamed up with the, the ruling political party now that supports Evo Morales, the MAS, to bring political stability that Charagua hadn't seen before. But I think the most crucial thing is that the ranchers choose to continue working with the Guarani-led local government. The ranchers see a huge uptick in their fortunes because natural resource prices, and that includes beef and soya prices, go through the roof. The first time I was there, they were down in the dumps. They were in a, in a, a, a sort of, they were in a recession. Their local economy, their local meat sales were very low. Their children weren't coming back to the farm. They were moving to Santa Cruz and getting urban careers or even driving taxis because there seemed to be no future in it. Now things have turned around for the ranchers. They're in a strong position, and yet they choose to continue working with the Guarani-led local government. Um, and so here you get a similar sort of dynamic, but beginning from a very different level as Viacha. Good government and, good and high participation lead to an endogenous rise in local standards and expectations for local government. <coughs> and so this is it. The, in conclusion... Neither economic interests nor social forces alone can explain Viacha Charagua or can explain the quantitative results, i.e. can explain all 311 municipalities. This is not, uh, those of you who know the Helpman Grossman story about lobbying and economic actors um, providing resources to political parties, and it's also not a Robert Putnam story about social capital. What explains this, and the econometric results bear that out and also the case study, what explains our results are the interaction of both factors, of civic factors and, uh, and local economic actors. Politics appears to be endogenous to the interaction of, of these things, and so you get good or bad politics as according to the degree and nature of these interactions um, in the local context. And last, the bold claim, how do we study not just decentralization, but a class of problems that we might call institutional reform? It seems to me that there is a class of phenomena where rules, complex organizations, and individuals interact in a context that's heavily influenced by things like culture, history, social norms, precisely the things that we have very poor data 
for, for discriminating across countries. We have very poor measurements of how these things vary from one country to another. And so going at this with big databases is kind of nonsensical because we can't measure some of the most important things that we need to understand to understand the results. And so my argument is that the way that I've tried to do this in Bolivia, a one-country large-end study, is a much better model going forward with a mix of quantitative and qualitative methods. Um, and, and the focus should be on understanding in depth what has happened in each country before we start comparing amongst countries. So in other words, the idea, ideally, this kind of work, and there are, I'm not the only one doing this. I don't mean to overclaim. There are other people um, like... Uh, Alberto Diaz Calleros and Beatriz Magaloni, who are, who are doing work along these lines very much. Um, but the idea is that other people would come along and study decentralization in other countries using a broadly similar method and approach, and then, and only then, do we start comparing across countries, as opposed to the first reflexive answer being, well, let's get a database with lots of countries and, and do comparisons that way. Thank you. Well, um, a very substantial amount for you to pick up on there. Um, before we go on, can I just mention um, there are copies of Jean-Paul's book on sale outside at I think half the, the uh, normal 60% price. 60% off. 60% off the normal price. So if you've been uh, stimulated by this, as I hope you you. you you will. You could pick one up. And uh, Jean-Paul has also offered to sign it for you, which might oh. add significantly to its uh, resale value as a first me. edition in I'm also very happy not to if you're offended. <laughs> yeah. I'm not insisting. So we've got 20, perhaps a little bit more time. Uh, so let's take some, some questions. Should we take two or three? We'll take two or three at a time and then move on. Yes. Yeah, um, there's you know there's a, the natural resource curse where if you get suddenly a lot of extra money, it, it, people argue it strengthens the political groups that then uh, cause the country to to not grow or get weaker in different ways. And you're sort of arguing the opposite from your example that the and your example was that one factory failed and then that factory once it was gone, that partic particular region became better. But do you have any feeling that maybe in some cases it worked in the opposite direction, that giving the regions money strengthened uh, individuals that then took power? Should I just answer that one? Mm -hmm. the, um, yeah, that's a good point. I, I think you could also interpret these results as as being consistent broadly, not, not specifically, but broadly with the natural resource curse literature in the sense that if there's one big pot of money and people fight for control over it, then whoever gains control can systematically distort things, right? Local politics, local interactions, undermine other actors, try to shut down civic organizations and so on, as happened in Viacha. Um, and, and so then when that when you take away the natural resources, or in this case you take away the beer company, which is a source of a lot of money and one, one sort of big, powerful interest, then you lift the constraint and things can get better. Um, but I'm sort of I'm distorting your question a bit. I think you're, you're saying when central government gives resources to municipalities, that's sort of analogous to a natural resource inflow, I guess, possibly, yeah. Um, <coughs> 
<clears throat> what I'm saying empirically is that without, I, I don't have any doubt that in Bolivia, this happened throughout the, con- the, the country and in most municipalities, things got better than what was going on beforehand under centralization. Um, and so it must be the case, I argue in the book, I didn't say it here, that there were more uh, charaguas than viachas, that there were more places that, that sort of muddled along in a good way or even very good local governments as opposed to, you know, cesspools pools of uh, corruption and, and malfeasance. Um, I think the way that they did it had a lot to do with it. And there, there's a crucial difference between the, the model that I think one thinks of with, with reference to uh, natural resource exploitation and the way that this decentralization was done, which is with high transparency and, and great simplicity. The central government set upon this decentralization and they, they picked a very simple distribution rule. Right? A more technocratic, rational means might have been to set up an equation that weights population but also weights poverty levels and unit costs and how dispersed the population is and whether you know, last year's incidences of diseases and malnutrition and whatnot, right, to come up with a more rational distribution. So if you suffer more and you're smaller and poorer, you get more money than a, a bigger city that's richer and has less malnutrition or whatever. Um, the problem is that the political logic of that would have been against accountability, I think. Mm. And other countries have done this kind of thing. And so let me, let me put it to you this way. When I was doing my field work, uh, at several points accidentally, I witnessed committees of local villagers turning up in the municipality saying, we have 50 families in our village, and we demand that you, the town hall, give us our school, because we've met, we've decided our priorities, we want to expand the school, or we want a new health post, or we want to, to improve the roads. And we know how much money you're getting for each one of us. We're 50 families, we're you know, 300 people, you need to give us so much money. That's because of the transparency. If there had been a complicated, technocratically accurate or rational equation, some mayors would no doubt have said, no, the the equation doesn't give you money this year. Sorry. You know, it's not my fault. I would love to, but the equation says that the other village gets it. And the villagers wouldn't have been able to fight that or would have been less effective in fighting that. Um, And so the the money was distributed in a particular way, which was highly transparent, and and the message was sent out during the reform that this was everyone's money. that's very different from natural resources, which come in through, especially you think about an oil well or a mine, there are a very small number of people who manage very large flows, and there's great in, untransparency in how much money there is, and, and, uh, and there's no rule for how it should be distributed. So I think the political logic of it is different, even though the basic idea of a resource shock, is, as you've pointed out, is similar. Do we have a question? Uh, thank you, Jean-Paul, for this excellent uh, talk. You, demonstrating, uh, you demonstrated at the beginning of your talk the magnitude and um, the importance of historical shift after thousands of years of centralization into uh, decentralization. My question is, why do you think this happened at this particular time? Do you believe that um, institutional structures reached so-called maybe glass ceiling uh, after which the uh, after which centralization has diminishing returns. And uh, what do you think are there increasing or diminishing returns to centralization and decentralization? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there there may be three books in that question. Um, (laughs) Shall I just... Yes, yes, I think just... Yeah. um, Okay, so why did... did, 
Your question is why did Bolivia decentralize at this point or why do we have decentralization in the world at this point in time? In the world, in the world, okay. <laughs> Students at the LSE are trying to solve <coughs> big problems. <laughs> um, I think I think it's a complicated question that has two very different sort of motivations. One is a technocratic motivation, which goes back to the theoretical reasons that I was talking about, which have to do with making government better, making democracy work better, making government more responsive, less corrupt, and so on and so forth, the kinds of things that we all think about vis-a-vis the good governance agenda or the rationale for decentralization that I mentioned at the outset. Um, But I don't think politicians, by and large, care about that very much. Or if they do, they care about it as a second-order problem. I don't mean to say there aren't some very good... You know, there are Nelson Mandela's out there without any question. But I don't think they're representative. I think most politicians name as their first priority something to do with furthering their career, staying in power, getting re-elected, something like that. And if better government or more transparency is a means to achieving that, then they'll go for it. But if it's not, they won't. Um, I I asked, I I went to Washington, D.C., where the Bolivian president who put through these reforms now lives in exile, uh, Goni Sanchez Lozada. And I asked him, why did you do decentralization in Bolivia? Imagine the, the problem that this guy faced. He ran for president. He was a very successful Minister of Planning in the stabilization. Bolivia had the highest inflation rate known to man at one point um, in the 1980s. They had more than 50,000% inflation in 1985, I think it was. And they brought it down to 6%. And Goni Sanchez Lozada with Jeff Sachs, Jeff Sachs likes to take full credit for this. He was, he was importantly involved, but it wasn't only him. It was also Goni and a few other people who was Minister of Planning. Um, and they brought it down to 6% in, in the space of less than a year. He ran for president and he won and power was taken away from him by a coalition of the guys who came in second and third, and so another guy called Jaime Pasamora won the presidency. He waits that presidential period, and he runs again for the presidency, and he wins by a bigger margin, and now they can't take power away from him, and so he becomes president. And I said to him, you mean to tell me, Goni, that the first thing you do upon entering through the big, wide, you know, central doors of the presidential palace, wearing the presidential sash, is to turn around and give away power and resources to people you cannot control? Está loco. What's happening? You're crazy. Why? No rational politician does that. Why did you do that? And so he said to me, well, I'm the philosopher king. I'm a bit like you know, Socrates. I know what's best. And my people demanded what's you know. And so that's why I did it. Mean, okay, fine, fine. I, let, let's say that I believe you. You know, I actually think that he's rich enough and old enough that he probably wanted to go down in history. But even leaving that aside... How did you convince your political party to go along with this? And how did you convince the central bureaucracy? Because the people who had to implement this were a whole bunch of Ministry of Education, Health, Transport, Agriculture, etc. officials who did not have, as part of their interests, giving away power and resources. Why would they do this? And so we talked about this for three days. And eventually what came out, and I think this is a general, I'm using this to illustrate a general argument. In Bolivia... His political party was the natural party of government for a long time because they were the party of the revolution, the 1952 revolution. They redistributed land to the peasants, and so they won the undying gratitude of two generations of peasants. And then those peasants were dying off. And so in the village, people's historical memory of the MNR and what they had done for their families and their town was basically dying away. And what he saw, and they were seeing their vote totals go down, and they would no longer, before they used to win elections outright, then they won elections in coalition, 
Now he was clinging on to power by his fingernails with a mega coalition of, of 17, no, was it, of 10 different parties. Then when he came back later on, it was 17 different parties. And there were a lot of upcoming populist parties that were eating into his party and the other traditional parties' electorates. Um, and what he sought, and this is how he sold it to his political party, what he sought was another defining moment, another grand reform on a par with land reform that would win over the affections and, and the loyalty of another 50 years' worth of um, especially rural, small towns and villages of those populations all over the country because they wanted to become, again, the natural party of power. So I think the, the reasons why we're seeing decentralization in the world, they're, they're on the one hand, they're driven in academic and technocratic discourse and literature by people who are seeking to make things better in a technocratic, rational way. And it only works for real, i.e. you only get decentralization that is really implemented. So many decentralizations listen to the World Bank and to people like us and, and make reference to what we write in, in the literature, but they don't really do it, right? As I said, they don't really, they pass the laws, but they don't really implement it. Those that are really implemented, like Bolivia, are because the reform is functional in some sense to keeping a coalition together or to gaining political advantage or to in somehow furthering politicians' careers. And when enough of the senior politicians find that that is the case, then they manage, if they're lucky, to push through real decentralization reform. Um, uh, the other thing is that in the developing world, we have a bunch of really big, complex countries. So, I mean, the other side of the, the uh, this is it's not the other. This is an extension of the technocratic argument. Before, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, we would have talked about decentralization in North America and Western Europe. And now we have really big, populous, very diverse countries in the developing world, like Brazil, Indonesia, China, Russia, etc., where running everything from Moscow or Brazil, it just doesn't seem, just naturally seems to make less sense. It's a bigger logical leap than running everything from London because they're so big and so diverse, right? Brazil is, I think, 19 times the size of France. So it, you, you need to think in, in different modes. And so the, the intellectual argument for it becomes much stronger. Sorry, very long-winded response. Yeah. Uh, Professor, uh, yeah. I see your model about uh, Bolivia in decentralization. Uh, but Bolivia, they, they got a really special Latin American culture in politics and religion. Uh, but do you think your model can apply to other parts, Asia or Africa, that kind of developing country? It still apply or not? Do you got an idea? Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you. It's an interesting question because my argument is that things like culture and history, et cetera, matter for decentralization. I'm not arguing that it needs to be done the same way, that you can take the Bolivian blueprint and impose it on other countries. But I do think that the idea that... Excuse me. The, <coughs> these... I do think that these ideas are much more general, that they're valid for, for more countries in Bolivia. Now, I'm making this assertion, and this is based on my review of the literature and observation. I've actually worked in other countries, not just Bolivia, though I'm only talking about Bolivia tonight. Um, but my, my, my gut feeling is that these sorts of things, um, moderated or, or sort of given local characteristics and local flavors for China or Indonesia or Russia, are also very relevant there. Um, because these are deep fundamental relationships in the local political economy. Um, and they're important 
bits of empirical work that, that sustain this. So more and more in recent years, there, there are empirical studies of decentralization in different countries that go along this sort of path in Colombia, in Indonesia, uh, in Switzerland, funnily enough, that show that there are real and powerful effects on local government efficiency and on real development outcomes like literacy rates. So, so far, I'm really talking about investment flows. The data in Bolivia doesn't permit us to go the additional step and talk about the real outcomes that we care about, like disease mortality or literacy or transport unit costs or something like that. But in other countries, with better data, you can, and the results seem to flow through. Um, Joe Stiglitz makes a powerful argument about decentralization, about fiscal federalism or fiscal decentralization in China, not political decentralization, because the place is still run by, by the Communist Party, but fiscal decentralization, where provinces have significant um, tax-raising powers and significant autonomy in investing money in, in ways that they choose, and how, this, as opposed to Russia with a highly centralized regime, and that this is an important part of the story of Chinese success and Russian failure in, in the last 20 years. So I, I think it's more general, but then we await more studies to see exactly how these kinds of ideas need to be adapted elsewhere. So you showed um, that decentralization has impressive benefits for the regions, I guess, both ways. And do you think that can continue at the same rate, say, like in another 10 years? And, or do you think that there will be another limiting factor? And if so, what would be the next step for Bolivia after decentralization to continue uh, raising standards of living? Oh, that's a good question. I think in Bolivia and other countries in Latin America, which is what I know best, like Colombia, for example, if we simply froze the institutional framework in its current state and let things move forward without changing the constitution or changing the law, then decentralization would tend to continue to, to improve standards of local health, education, and other provision, because there's no important reason for thinking that these things will change, right? And so if government has become more responsive, absent any big exogenous um, distortions, then more responsive government should continue to be better. I mean, this is the central logic here. <coughs> In Bolivia, a lot has changed. And one of the things that has changed is that the entire political party structure at the national level and the local level has changed. And I think this is directly a result of decentralization, a hugely unintended consequence. So I mentioned that Goni Sanchez de los Santos, so what I'm saying is I think it could have continued along the same path. I don't think it will because so much is changing. It's very difficult to predict what will happen now because so many things are changing in different dimensions. Goni Sanchez Lozada implemented decentralization, in my view, because he wanted to, to regain the majority for his political party and cement its role as the natural majority party, and that completely blew up in his face. And what happened, in fact, was that the, the, political, party, the political party system for 50 years after the revolution in Bolivia was a typical left-right political party, sort of 20th century system, where the left-wing parties were pro-poor, pro-worker, pro-poor, sorry, pro-smaller actors, pro-state intervention, and the right-wing parties were pro-capital, pro-business sector, less regulations, lower taxes, right? A classic kind of thing like we have in many countries. Um, and what we have now after decentralization with a lag of about 10 years is that all of those parties have been swept from the board. They are all dead in, in fact or, sorry, in, in practice or legally and in every sense. The parties have been legally disbanded and, uh, and no longer exist in any sense whatsoever. And we have a new politics rising up, which is based on, on popular mass movement 
itself based on identity. So the, the central axis of politics has shifted from left-right capital labor to something based on ethnic identity um, and regions. <clears throat> and, and so Evo Morales, for example, owes his existence directly to decentralization. What ha- he got his, his start in local politics in the Chapare. He was a local coca leader, then he became a local political leader, and then he, became, he went to Congress and then became president. But more interestingly, if you look at Congress before the reform, 90 to 95% of them were white men who were professionals, businessmen, and landowners. You know? And the number of brown-skinned indigenous people um, with surnames of that, of that group, of the majority, of 75% of the country, was very, very, very small. And if you look now at Congress, 50% of people are former carpenters and truck drivers from the villages with different surnames. They're no longer Lopez or Sanchez de Losada. They're now Maita and, and Chacumani and things like this. Um, and they look different and they have a different trajectory. And if you look at the Constitutional Congress that, that just finished in 2010, 80% of that of, were people of this sort of extraction. So we've had a huge sociological shift and the kinds of people that participate in politics, and that's due to decentralization, which extended a downward ladder to lower strata of the population that before could not participate, because before politics was, by definition, national. So to be a politician, you had to penetrate national politics to get elected to Congress, because there was no local politics outside of a couple of cities, La Paz and Santa Cruz and so on. Um, And that oligopoly was broken up by decentralization. so as a result of this, the politics has changed. They changed the Constitution. They're deepening decentralization in really important ways that would, if you read the, the laws, if you read the paper, these deepenings very much go in the spirit of the reforms that I'm describing here. This is all very new, so I can't, it's impossible to really study it well. The data simply aren't there. Um, on the other hand, the Evo Morales government is managing things in an incredibly centralized way. The, the practice of government is far, far more centralized than ever before through a legal structure that appears to be more decentralized. So my answer to the question is I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> We're just about there. If, if I could just raise one issue. Um, if, if one thinks about the policy implications of this, I mean, what you're showing is that performance is actually a function of levels of political consciousness, political organization, which themselves are a function of the capacity of particular kinds of groups. You emphasize uh, a tribal group, but if one looks at Western politics, one would talk about the role of the working class, for example, in building, say, in this country, the Labour Party that, you know, that transforms the, the way in which government operates. This is, this is highly contingent. What you're actually suggesting is that the outcome of a constitutional reform, changing a set of institutions, is not a function so much of the institutions themselves, but of the capacity of the organizations and the sort of social consciousness of the people that create those organizations to build this. Now, it seems to me that, that your book actually pretty well confirms Putnam's point. I mean, it seems to me that Putnam's proposition, which is northern decentralization in northern Italy succeeded because of strong civic capacity able to translate that into political demands, and in the south it didn't because you had a patron-client society that 
managed to capture those processes, you've, done, you've shown pretty much the same thing. Putnam's point is, well, what that means is that effective progress is actually path-dependent upon the actual capacities of particular societies, which is great for the societies that have those capacities and not so great for the ones that don't. And so the interesting question that I raise is, in a sense, what do you do about this? What's the message that you would give to people in you know, the, the, the lower-performing areas of Bolivia or in Nigeria or Uganda, where I work, uh, as a result of this? What should they do? Is, is democratization a question of changing rules and changing systems, or does it depend on something else? Yeah, for, for, the sake, for the sake of development management mm-hmm. students who go deeply into this kind of thing, Putnam's model would, would get rid of this bit and that bit and would have an arrow going from civil society straight to local government responsiveness. So he's saying civil society is highly organized in northern Italy and, and pretty well in middle Italy and in central Italy, but much less so in southern Italy, and so you get more or less responsive government as a result. So I mean, one difference is just that this, this model is, is more complex and I think explains more variation, certainly in Bolivia, than Putnam's model could in Bolivia. But that's not, I, I don't want to get into too much of an egghead discussion about that. The, the more interesting point which you pose is about um, groups that, that have a high degree of organization and others that don't. Putnam tries to trace back the roots of civic resilience and civic organization in northern Italy and its absence in southern Italy, and he loses the trail after about 800 years. You know, he says, well, these things just emerged in medieval times in the north because you had guilds, but it's tough to tell. The historical record is, is sparse, and we don't know. It just happened a long time ago in one part of Italy, and it didn't happen in another. And I'm not questioning, you know, I've never researched Italy, and he's a great scholar of Italy. But in Bolivia, this is simply not true. Because this organization here, this, this, this APG here, was formed in 1987, right? And the reform came in 1994. So it's possible that in Italy you need centuries and centuries of, of work and civic dedication to, to get this level of organization. But in Bolivia you didn't, and Bolivia is poorer and frankly less educated and less erudite than, uh, than Italians today, certainly. Uh, and possible, well, never mind. And so <laughs> let's, let us not make those comparisons. <laughs> um, so, um, so, so if you can do it in Bolivia, you can do it across a broad range of developing countries that suffer from chronic malnutrition and illiteracy and, and medium to low incomes per capita. Because Bolivia has all of those things, and within Bolivia, Guaranis are one of the single poorest, most oppressed groups historically in society. And yet they managed to form the civic organization. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book, I go into much more detail about how that came about, um, and the sort of some of the a few of the secrets of community organization, I guess, as Obama might call it. Um, I think it comes down to some fairly simple things about organizing people and talking through policy problems. This isn't a problem that you throw money at. You don't invest in capital resources. It is a money that re- it is a problem that requires a lot of elbow grease, a lot of, uh, of people's efforts and time and dedication. Um, the technology is straightforward, but getting people motivated enough on the organizing side and then the people who are being organized to participate is a, is a non-trivial problem. Yeah, and it seems to me the message from that is go out, get out and organize if you want to actually get your democ- democratic processes to work. 
Could I just ask a question? Uh, are there any people here who are going to take advantage of the uh, possibility of signing this text? Because we just need to organize that. No, 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 no. I just want to... Um, so the books are available outside and um, John Paul will be available there. Uh, I think that we've actually had an extremely interesting evening and this is clearly the sort of end point of a really long and important piece of investigation that I think is influence, going to influence the discipline. So thank you very much for... Thank you. Thank you.